you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We are going to be in the book of John this morning. We are in the Gospel of John, so if you would, go ahead and open there to chapter 1. We're going to be in the first five verses. Now, one of the things I like to do, as you guys uh, have seen and noticed, so in the month of January, I like to kind of, I'd love to just kind of take a break personally from preaching in that time. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Nathan and Pastor Sage um, bringing sermons during that, uh, during the month of January. And I hope you guys have been able to establish some spiritual disciplines reading your Bible on a regular basis, praying regularly, being a good steward of your life and and everything for the sake of the gospel, and even being just uh, inspired and compelled to go and share the gospel to evangelize. So I pray that that was a Kickstarter for you in that. And when I come in in February, I love to just, I want to take about five to ten minutes and just kind of cast a little bit of vision of what I want to see us do moving forward, and then I'm going to jump into uh, the Gospel of John. I think we've been focusing on faithfulness in all seasons, and that's as leadership, we've been really driving that ball down the field, so to speak. How do we continue to be faithful in all seasons? And last year was difficult, right? We saw faithfulness in seasons of sorrow and in exile, and then ultimately we saw faithfulness in the coming of Christ and Christmas. But as we turn the page or to the next chapter in 2021, uh, we begin to really see what has happened in 2020. 2020 has bubbled to the surface, really our true convictions, our true heart, our true beliefs about things, what we actually believe about the church and what it is we actually believe about life and politics and whatever it is, right? There has been Nowhere that anyone can hide. All of the truth has really started to come out. But what we've begun to see in that is that we, and I'm speaking generally when I say we, I'm not just going redeemer, but we lack honor in our culture. We lack honor significantly. And honor, when we look at it in Scripture, there's multiple definitions for it, but these three in particular, we're talking about respect, value, worth. Honor. I mean, we actually, as elders, ask you to read Romans 12, 13, 14. And those chapters have to do with honor. That's the big biblical theme in those chapters. And realizing that, that actually, in American culture, we actually are terrible at honoring anyone. We love ourselves a lot. We don't know how to honor anyone, really. And we are in danger of getting swept up into the culture of polarization. You're Democrat, you're Republican, right? You're Black Lives Matter, you're All Lives Matter, you're whatever camp you want to be in, and there is a dishonoring of the other camp. There's no honor across the aisle, so to speak. And so what we do is we take advantage of throwing other people under the bus. We do it on social media. We do it in our kind of shunning and our judgmental eyes and and looks and scoffing towards one another. We really don't like one another. We're often lions behind the keyboards or lions behind our cell phones, but then we're just passive, quiet mice when it comes to being in person. Right? We just hold it all together, and then when we hit the Internet, boom, we are all about it. So we are a culture, a society, where we judge one another with great judgment. We assume always, almost all the time, the worst of the other person. And so here's what I want to do. This isn't a rebuke to us. <laughs> this is a, hey, let's change our minds here. First Corinthians 7 highlights the reality that through Christ, we were bought with a price. We were bought with a price. And the price by which we were bought was the price of the life of God, our Savior, Jesus. Him dying on the cross for us. 
And so that means then, if we look at this passage in particular, those of us who are in Christ have a value, a worth, an honor about them, a value and worth that is equatable to the value and worth of the Savior Himself. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because we are in Christ, because we have His salvation, we also obtain the same value and honor. His righteousness given to us. His honor given to us. His glory given to us. And so therefore, to show less honor to one another is to show less honor ultimately to the Lord. That's ultimately what we're doing. So therefore, then, let's honor one another. And it's to honor somebody doesn't mean to just have good manners. To say please and thank you. To be nice. But it is ultimately to have reverence towards Christ. He has given His life for your brothers and sisters in this room. And there are brothers and sisters in this room that you don't agree with. And that's okay. But here's the common bond that you have. Life in Christ. The blood of Christ covers you. And so then... We should no longer bestow anything other than honor upon one another. And so I want us to be that church that moves forward a people, right? Tone setters in our culture, in our society, in our city, around the globe for showing that we know how to honor people and even people that we don't agree with at all. And so... I want to just lay out some practical ways. I want to help lead this out as I kind of cast this vision. First and foremost, I I just want you to know, we don't ever in our lives ever, ever need to take ourselves seriously. Okay? If you can't laugh at yourself, if you can't laugh at a situation, have a joke, have fun, then you are taking life way too seriously and it's going to be miserable for you. That's a preface to what I'm about to say. I am going to commit myself to speaking words of life to my wife, to my children, to the elders, to the ministry leaders, to all of you. It's really easy for me to just cut it up, be real quick to to cut down and be super sarcastic with everybody, right? And just have fun at maybe your expense. But I want to... Come back on that. I'm not saying I can't have fun. Sarcasm doesn't have its place, but ultimately the scriptures are clear that we are to honor one another, and I want I want to lead that out. I want to build up. And so whatever I post on social media, whatever I say from the pulpit, in staff meetings or whatever it is, I want it to reflect a respect and dignity for neighbor and not an opportunity to just throw someone else under the bus and lift myself up. I don't want to do that. I, in particular, want men in our community, since we are leaders in the church and we're generally leaders in society, right? We lead our homes, we lead our children, we lead our wives and so forth. I want us to be men of honor, men of dignity, men of integrity. And that's what I want the men in our church to be known for. I want the women and the wives of the men in our church to see that their husbands are being built up and cared for and nurtured within this church body. I want them to say, hey, honey, I want you to go hang out with him. And I want you to go hang out with those guys because those guys will encourage you and build you up. You're not always coming home frustrated and angry. You're actually coming home happy. And ultimately, we have a task and a responsibility, at least I do, to raise up young men to be elders, to raise up young men to be preachers and leaders on the mission field and the churches and so forth. And I want men, young men especially, to come in with inexperience and to fumble all over the place and mess up and not feel like they're being criticized or put down all over the place. I want them to have opportunity to fail and not risk being ridiculed. And so, that is... A vision I want to cast for us moving forward. To have that speech of honor, that attitude of honor, that behavior of honor. And why? 
as a kind of transition to the book of John. Our God is a God of honor. He's a God of honor. Think about it. At what point in time has Jesus ever thrown the Father under the bus? Or has the Father ever abandoned Jesus in His life and ministry on earth? Or has the Spirit said, yeah, I don't think so. There's never been a point of contention or dishonoring or disrespect or devaluing one person of the Trinity over the other. Before creation, it was who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They weren't growing tired and weary of one another or frustrated with one another. Perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect dignity, honor and respect and value of one another. And the Gospel of John is full of honor. I've been able to read the Gospel of John quite a bit lately and uh, even reading it with my kids. And, and if you don't know this, most everybody in here has access to Netflix. Netflix has, uh, thank you, Mrs. Burke, for showing me this some time ago. She's up there. Yep, the peace sign. The Gospel of John. There's a reading of the Gospel of John, and they act it out at the same time. It's a literal reading of the, of the Word of God, and it was actually quite good. And my family and I watched it together, and it was really good to talk. And my kids had incredible questions about the Word as we were going through it. But throughout all John's Gospel, Jesus never misses an opportunity to honor the Father. He's always honoring the Father. Because my Father has told me to do so. Because this glorifies the Father. He never takes it upon Himself to throw His dad under the bus for His own glory. Like a rebellious child. And so the Gospel of John. John is historically recognized as the author, though it's, his name is not explicitly mentioned, though you do see him as uh, recognized as the one whom Jesus loves. He was one of the twelve disciples. He was an eyewitness to the things of Christ. You see that in 1 John chapter 1. He's basically saying in that book, hey, look, I've seen these things, I've heard these things, and I'm testifying to you these things that they are true. John is recognized as the Apostle of Love. He's recognized as that because 80 times in the book of John, he makes reference to love. Right? The most known Bible verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world. Right? 80 different times. 25 times he mentions truth. And 100 times he mentions the word believe in reference to believing in the gospel. John's gospel is also called the holy of holies of all the gospels because you have the full glory of Jesus on display. John MacArthur says it like this, that we are like priests who have gone and had access into the holy of holies, pulling back the veil and beholding the Lord of glory. John's Gospel is also extremely simple and also complex. When you're in seminary and you take Greek class, you translate John's work because it is the most simple of the, of the Greek language in the New Testament. At the same time, it is very deep. It is very theologically rich. And so what we see here, ultimately, in John's Gospel, unlike the others, is that God has come in the flesh. God has come in the flesh. Each gospel has a different sort of introduction, different sort of themes in how they uh, introduce Jesus to us. Matthew introduces Jesus to us as the Messiah. Mark introduces Jesus to us as the servant. Luke introduces Jesus to us as human. And John introduces Jesus to us as God. And John is very unique in this way. You see even later on in the Gospel of John that this is the only time it's mentioned in all the Gospels that Jesus was, they were trying to kill Jesus because He considered Himself equal with God. He considered Himself to be God. You also have the infamous seven I Am passages of Jesus. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door to the sheep, 
the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And so John, more than the other Gospels, he's not giving us so much an earthly story as he is a heavenly story. Most of John's Gospel doesn't come from recording it from, say, Mark or Matthew or Luke, but this is his own writing inspired by the Spirit. You see nothing in the Gospel of John about baptism uh, or birth, the temptation of Jesus, the transfiguration, really His travels or the ascension. You have no parables in the story of John. right? Those are all earthly stories. John stays at a higher altitude in uh, telling us a heavenly story. But as we jump into chapter 1 here, We're only going to be in the first five verses today, but in the first 18 verses, you really have a laying out of all the major themes of the book of John. And some of those we will see today, a theme of darkness and death versus light and life. You see that work throughout the entire story of John as he tells stories where he meet some people meet him in the dark and Jesus goes to people in the daytime. You see the contrast between that. You also see a very unique theme of exodus, salvation. Immediately in the book of John chapter 1, we will see that Jesus is the one who came and dwelt among us. That word dwell means to tabernacle. It's the same word you see in the book of Exodus. And all over through the book of John, you see that theme of exodus and deliverance where Jesus becomes the Passover lamb for our souls. But here's the thesis of the book. If John was a good if John was a writer in our modern day universities and colleges, he would do well because he states his he basically states his thesis in the first 18 verses and then at the end of his book in chapter 20, he restates his thesis and sandwiched in between is an explanation of of his thesis all the way through. But here's the thesis John says in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, believing you may have life in His name. And hence the the series, Life in His Name. So let's hold John to this. Let's see if his thesis or his conclusion here in chapter 20 is the thesis of the entire Gospel of John. But that is it. Jesus is God and in no one else is there salvation. You must believe in Him. There is life in His name. And so today, we will see the eternal Creator saving Word of God. Eternal Creator, saving Word of God. Let me read the first five verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, I pray that Your Word would just sink deep into our soul. And that it would shine light in the dark places of our souls, and the hard places of our lives. And that it would give us life. Be with me now, the preacher. Give me the words to speak. Use me however you will. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The Eternal Word, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 1 and 2. The beginning and the Word. Right away... These words strike the audience in a unique fashion. 
strikes the audience in a unique way. Most of us as believers, we start to think of the creation story back in the book of Genesis. And that's the idea. Especially to the Jew that John is writing. And understand, he's not writing to just Jews, but he's writing to a broad audience. So to the Jew, it's going to be received one way and also to the Greek. But let me hit on the Jew. In the beginning, they would go straight to Genesis. Genesis 1. That in the beginning, God. Right? This is the creation story. John is not only going to just show parallels, but he's going to show that Jesus is the same is the same God that is mentioned in the book of Genesis. The God who creates, but even more than that, when we get into the gospel, the God who recreates his creation, making a new beginning for broken sinners. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's a unique title, and it's unique to John alone. Capital W there in your Bible. Logos, or Logos, whatever Greek scholar you follow, right? There's the understanding that God's Word is everything. When you dive into the Old Testament, into the book of Genesis, and it said that God spoke, it's that same idea in the Hebrew language of Ruah. It can mean wind, or it can mean spirit, Or it can mean the word here. So the idea is that when a Jewish reader is reading this, they are understanding that John is alluding back to the story of creation when God spoke in nothingness. And out of nothingness came everything. But even more than that, when you work through the history of the Bible, as we have done this last year, as you work through the pages of Scripture, every time God speaks... What happens? It comes about. There's never a time when God says He's going to do something and then falls short. There's never a covenant that He makes that He ends up breaking. Right? God's Word is sure. And so what John is doing is, he's saying that Jesus, ultimately, is the assurance of our salvation. He is the assured Word of God. And so He will come The Word made flesh. And He will do a work to redeem His creation. And so ultimately, what the Father has said for the Son to accomplish, it will be accomplished. This is why Jesus, when He's on the cross, saying, it is finished. He's declaring a work of accomplishment. Your will has been done, Father. It's not over yet, but it has been accomplished. And so everything that Jesus would set out to do would not come back void or empty. To the Greek or the Gentile, as Pastor Sage was saying last week, meaning pretty much everyone else, either a Jew or everyone else, there was a widespread philosophy that kind of set around for about 700 years prior to Christ with the idea that all of creation and all of life is constantly in flux, it's constantly changing however at the same time it's not in complete chaos it's not a complete mess they use an example of a river a river is always changing you go into a river and you step out of the river and you wait two seconds and step back in the river it's a new river because the water is constantly flowing so they live under that sort of philosophy of life that it was always changing but they did have a belief in the logos that there was a divine word that kept all things in order and did not lose control of the ever-flowing and changing rhythms of life. So here's what John is doing. Really under this divine artistry, John is writing in such a way that it captures all of his audience, both the Jew and the Gentile. And that's a beautiful thing we see. So John's hope of clearly communicating life in Jesus' name will not be passed by anyone. Nobody's going to go, hey, I don't get it. They get it. So in the beginning was the Word. Jesus, the Word. And what about this Word? John says the Word was with God. Meaning, showing personality. There is a distinction here. 
though not every single time, generally speaking in the New Testament, when God is mentioned, He is speaking of, or the Bible is speaking of, God the Father. Of course, we're going to see in just a moment here that it's not always exclusively the Father, but most of the time it is speaking of the Father. So this distinct person who is the Word was with God. So there's a distinct personality here. So you have God and you have the Word. Which is also important for us as Trinitarians to understand. And, and granted, if those of you who have kids, talking about the Trinity is like the most difficult thing you could ever do. And you're just like, you know what? Let's just move on past this. We'll hit it in about 20 more years, okay? But Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And each have distinct personalities and roles within the Godhead, but they are all one God. And so we will see as we flip the pages of the book of John, how Jesus' distinct personality and role becomes more and more clear, as well as the Father and the Spirit. So the Word was with God. But but also, John says, the Word was was God. (laughs) To everybody, their brain is hurting. Right? How can you be with God and then also God at the same time? And that's kind of the point. There's some divine mystery here. Right? But at the same time, we we can conceptualize what is going on. That there's just distinct persons in the Godhead, but they are all yet God. So this Word is not only with God, but this Word is divine, is God. This is important because Jesus, the Son of God, has always been the Son of God. It wasn't that Jesus became the Son of God. Jesus has always been the Son of God before all of creation. Jesus would become or made the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, He would be made a human, but never at any point was Jesus made to be the Son of God. This is where you begin to see a shift in difference between Orthodox Christianity and cultic belief. That Jesus was somehow created. He's not. The language is very clear. He is eternal. It's significant because when we get later on in the verses, especially I think in verse 14, we begin to see that this Word who is with God and is God also dwells among humanity. He comes down, becoming flesh. And so that's significant because the uncreated Creator would submit Himself to His creation in order to save His creation ultimately from themselves and for the sake of the Father's glory. We also see that there's divine truth here. Because Jesus is God, uncreated God, His Word is absolutely true in every way. Absolutely true. Can be trusted which is good for us because when we have to consider how we obey or when do we obey or should we obey Jesus, we can always stand on the concrete reality that Jesus' word is true. And we yes, we need to believe and we need to obey. And it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come through. This also, His divinity also speaks to His character. Think about this. Jesus doesn't all of a sudden become compassionate, gentle, lowly, caring when He becomes a human being. Jesus is the exact representation, the reflection of who God is from eternity. Before creation, God is gentle, lowly, compassionate, humble. That's why God could honor God and care for God. And God is love. And so when Jesus comes down 
and he lives and dwells among us, he is a reflection of an eternal divine reality. His compassion and love towards one another, he's just saying, oh, this is what it's like when me and the Father hang out. And so we catch glimpses of that. And so the Word was with God, was God. And there's this reiteration, He was with God in the beginning. You notice that language change. He. He was with God in the beginning. John is slowly disclosing that the Word and this He is Jesus, is the Son of God. And here what we can begin to see is that God has understanding. Jesus has understanding. The Word made flesh who dwelt among us, He knows what it means to be human. He knows what it means to live in a broken and darkened and sinful world. He knows what it's like to be around a community of people that are polarized and angry and dishonor one another. He knows what it's like to have to deal with broken families and broken relationships. Jesus understands. And this is great news because God is not so high and lofty. He is essentially so holy that we cannot touch Him. And yet, He comes down and puts His arms around us. And so He is able then, Scripture tells us, to sympathize with sinners. And He's not ashamed to call us brothers at all. So why does this matter? When God created, God created not out of a a posture of desire or boredom or anxiety, but out of a posture of love, out of a posture of compassion. When we sinned, God then responded in a posture of love. When we continue to reject God, God's wrath came from a posture of love. When Jesus came and dwelt among us, He did so because of love. Again, for God so loved the world. And so Jesus being the eternal Word is comforting, it's securing, but it's also to be understood as being relatable. Jesus relates to us. Hebrews 1 tells us that in these latter days, God has spoken to us through His Son. And John highlights that. So the question is, are you listening? God has spoken. Are you listening? Are you turning a deaf ear? Do you hear His voice? Soon we're going we're gonna to see ourselves as the sheep of God and ask the question, do we even recognize the voice of our great shepherd? Is it familiar to you? Or does it seem foreign And every time you open the Word, you're just, oh, I can't stand listening to Him. The eternal nature of Jesus' Word is important because the Word never has an expiration date. His Word never expires. I mean, look at how God's Word has been going since creation. I mean, look at just in the New Testament, right? Since the establishment of the church, the Bible, it's constantly going. We are going to be dead in like 50 to 100 years, right? Depending on how old you are in here. All of us are going to be dead, but God's Word will still be going on and going strong. Before, you know, before contracts really became a thing in our society, you know, a man's word and a handshake was good enough, Right? And that was as good as a contract. And under, but understand, as honorable as a man is to his word, his word can only last as long as he does. As soon as the man is gone, his word is also gone. Right? But not with Jesus. His word endures. And his word is as, as eternal as the very nature of Jesus because the word is God. Jesus is alive, sitting on His throne. He's never going to die. His his life is never going to run out. That means it's always a wellspring of life for us. And so that means the Word of Jesus is eternal in its breadth, 
its length, its height, its scope. Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and active, and it is. As long as Jesus is living and active, so is His Word. And so I would say, if the Word of God is eternal, then its findings are eternal, and its applications are eternal. I've run into folks before going, yeah, I've... Yeah, I get it. I get the New Testament. I'm done with it. You know, like, I've already heard it before. You're missing it then. You haven't even scratched the surface on the glory of Christ and on who your God is. Your problem is you're just bored with Him. But all the treasures you ever want and desire are found in Him and in His Word every single day. Is there any area of your life you believe the Word of God is really just dead and inactive? If you believe God's Word is dead and inactive, you have entered into a state of hopelessness, which is anti-gospel, which is what Jesus says is not right. Okay. Is there any part of your life that you've decided to just maybe throw in the towel, call it quits because it appears... God's Word has just timed out. It's not going to happen. I give up. So is the problem that God's Word is inadequate and runs out of time? Or is it that you want God's Word to work on your timeline in your way? God's Word is not going to stop working. We need to continue to be faithful. Continue to trust. Continue to believe and understand that God is is doing something. You may not know it in the moment, but God is constantly at work and doing things. So that means you don't have to give up on your marriage. So that means you don't have to give up on raising your children. You're going to screw up. You're going to sin. You're going to commit all sorts of... You're going to say all sorts of wrong things and do all sorts of dumb things. But that's because you're a broken sinner. However, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And He directs you and guides you. He convicts you to go back to the eternal Word of God. And usually we quench the Word of, we quench the Spirit and say, no, I don't want to go back to the Word. And that's when we find ourselves in trouble. But if we constantly, if we follow the lead of the Spirit and go back to the Word of truth, the Word of life, the Word of God, then there is hope for the things that are broken. Our marriages, our parenting, our job situations, broken relationships. That means it is possible for Republicans and Democrats to actually like one another. I mean, believe it. (laughs) And so I want to encourage you of all these things to just hope in God's Word. We are such a microwave culture. We want it now. But that's not, it's more like a smoker. It's going to take time, a lot of time, and just endurance and keeping at it and keeping at it and trusting. Everything that God has spoken has come about. If you read the Bible, everything has happened, for the most part, except His return, right, has come about. What God has in store for us in the days ahead is going to be far greater than we can imagine. I heard Pastor Nathan mention this the other day. It was beautiful. Talking about our horizon. We often have a short-sighted horizon versus the long horizon. We're always seeing the immediate in front of us. The issues we have with family. The issues we have at work. The issues we have at our... Whatever it is, right? And we're, we're so nearsighted that we're missing the ultimate horizon, which is the return of Christ. The hope that we have in eternity. And so we get really anxious. right? We get cabin fever. We just kind of give up. We throw in the towel because we're looking at the short-sighted horizon. We need to extend that view further out. Imagine something greater. Something better. Something that the Bible illustrates beautifully. Especially in the book of Revelation. So don't live your life in light of your failures in the failures of words of broken people, but live your life in the light of the great work of the living God who has provided for us 
the Word of God that has been spoken to us and now even lives inside of us. Those words are true. They are good. They are life-giving. This is why Paul even says, this brings life to your mortal flesh. And this is the hope for us. That God is going to create for us a new and better home. And so we see in verse 3, the Creator Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. All of these things, everything in creation, John says, the Word made them. He made them. Colossians kind of clarifies even more, saying not only made through Him, but made by Him and made for Him. Jesus, or the Word, is the agent. The Father is creating through the Son, by Him, for Him. And so all authority has been given to the Son. Jesus, or the Word, has authority over all creation. Everything created has been created through Jesus. Nothing was made without Him. Which is a further testimony that Jesus is not created. Though some cults like to say that Jesus is the creation, or He is the firstborn of creation, meaning He was the first one created, which is a misunderstanding of Colossians 1. The true understanding is that Jesus, all of creation was bore out of Him, through Him, by Him, for Him. And so creation testifies to the Word, testifies to Jesus more implicitly. And you see that in creation, right? Creation in and of itself, take the Bible, right? Push it to the side. Creation is testifying to all people for all time that there is something wrong and that God is judging them. You see this in Romans chapter 1, right? It doesn't matter where you're at on the planet. God has spoken to all of creation, even if it's implicitly. And the problem that we have, especially as Westerners, in our modern thinking, is that we take implicit words and meanings and we say they're irrelevant. And we need them to be proven in some way. That we need more evidence. Well, John shows up. says, here's the evidence. Here's the Word. Here's the One who created. Here's the explicit revelation of God to all humanity. You've been wanting to see Him? Here He is. God in the flesh. In these latter days, Hebrews says... God has spoken to us through His Son. The proof is there. Though explicit versus implicit, God is the same God. Jesus is the same God as He was in the beginning when He created. His Word has not changed. God has not been hiding. But you know what the truth is? We are the ones who changed. We are the ones who went into hiding. When we sinned against the Word of God. So Jesus, this divine creator, he comes to earth to do something sort of like he's already done. That is to create. But recreate. You see this echoed throughout all the Old Testament as God's people are constantly being recreated into his people. They sin against him, right? He spares a remnant. He brings them back to himself, recreating his people again, if you will. Just a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ. That Jesus would come and he would take his broken creation and he would make them new. New people. New heavens. New earth. And understand, there is no power, no authority, no divinity that can, re- that can fix or recreate a broken creation other than Christ alone. For the last year, if you guys have known me and my family, we've been doing a lot of work on homes. I just want to let you know, we are not the next... Chip and Joanna Gaines. We're not going to do anything like that at all. It's not like we set out on a journey to go, you know, fix homes and then sell them. Uh, it was the cards dealt. There was a lot of 
anger, a lot of sleepless nights, and a lot of Chick-fil-A, which I'm thankful for. Um, that's a nice lunch when you're working. Yes, Bob. So this house that my wife's father passed away a little over a couple years ago, and so she received her um, childhood home, which was just kind of sitting there. But when you looked at the home, the evidence of wear and tear was all over the house. Just all over the house. Doors were broken. Any fixes that were made over the last several decades were made by nothing more than just, say, duct tape and fingers crossed. (laughs) There's a lot of unique things I learned about my late father-in-law as we were fixing that home. Cobwebs. There was the stench. There was overgrowth from years of neglect that were just highly visible on the house, in the house, around the house. But along with the physical depletion were memories. Some really good memories, some not so good memories. But the scars, the pains that the home experienced over the years, even the joys and the celebrations were evident in about every room, every marking on the wall, even down to the flooring, there were certain memories you could find. And so by the time we received the home, about a year after him passing away, you could just sense that everything about the house, from its physical to even more spiritual being, was just dark. There was no evidence of life in that place. Nobody had lived in that place for years. It was just sitting there. And so over the course of the next nine months, we, along with many people, turned that deadened, lifeless home into a vibrant, life-giving home for a new family. And so we, with our human hands, we made that home new again. And when we sold that home, it was now then, it was then ready to take on a new story, a new identity, new memories, and ultimately come back to life for the purpose of which it was originally created. God is in the business of restoring broken things. And He's doing so by His very Word. When God created in the beginning, He just spoke and creation came, right? And so like a home that is built with the intention of good, so you and I were built with the intention of good. But like a house that can go south and become broken, so too we have become broken. We have become like a broken home. But God will bring us back to life through the gospel of recreation by the very power of His Word. And He's not only going to recreate our bodies and our souls, He's going to recreate our relationship to Him and our relationship to one another. So what broken things in your life do you need God to fix? Or do you want God to fix? What broken parts of your soul or life do you see that God has maybe already begun a work of recreating? You becoming a new man, a new person, In Christ. How might you start looking at things around you that are created? Be it your children, your home, your car, a garden that you planted. And begin to see what God is teaching you about His love for you through creation. And so as God fixes our broken souls, He'll not just make us look fixed, but He will bring light and life into our darkened frames. And so Jesus says the saving word, verse 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so in Him, again, here we have it. In Him, He, verse 2, was with God in the beginning. It's that same Him ultimately we'll see as Jesus. He, in Him, was what? Life. Jesus is the source of life. He is life. That's who He's been. It's always been who He was. There's no time when Jesus was not alive and then became alive. He's always been alive. He's always alive and thus the life that He provides is eternal life. Not temporary life. Not life with an expiration date. But eternal life. And this life 
He gives as the light of men. If we look at the old creation story in Genesis 1, God creates. Right? There's this nothingness. There's this void of darkness. And God speaks. And things start coming into being. The sun and the earth and the plants and the waters and those sorts of things. And then He begins to create man and woman. And He creates Adam. And He creates Eve. And He speaks. That is that lagos or ruah. He speaks or breathes into them. And they come to life. Like Pastor Sage said last week, talking about evangelism, that Jesus dives to the depths of the sea, pulls us up, and He resuscitates us. That is the idea here that God is breathing life into people made from dust. And so in this new creation, Jesus goes. So He's the light that fearlessly penetrates darkness. He's already done this before. There was darkness and void over the waters of the deep in Genesis 1. He's gone into dark places before. He's not afraid of dark places at all. And so He comes into creation, into the darkened world for the purpose of bringing light to it. And He doesn't just go into the world. He also goes into a grave. And He brings light into the grave. And so He fearlessly comes and penetrates the darkness. And as He goes, He doesn't just penetrate the darkness with light. He revives the soul. He revives a deadened creation with His breath, with His life. He's now performing a gospel CPR, if you will. Jesus divinely exhales and we supernaturally inhale His very life. So Jesus breathes out and we breathe Him in and it brings life to our souls in every way. Ephesians 5, he says, Paul says, but when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For if anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul then says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Jesus comes into the darkness and He breathes life into our corpse because we were dead in our sins. Like Sage said last week, we're not sitting here treading water trying to reach the life wrath. We're at the bottom of the ocean, dead, bloated, unable to do anything. Jesus has to come down, grab us, bring us to the surface and breathe life into our deadened bodies and we step out of the grave. We step out of the coffin. We come to life in Him. And He shines in the darkness. He spoke over the void of our darkened souls and now our souls are illuminated with the life of Christ. And light is also far-reaching. It goes beyond what we can see. It penetrates so far. And so the idea with the light of Christ that it comes into our soul, reaching the cracks and crevices of our darkened soul, bringing everything to light, as Paul says, so that it would go from darkness to light and be redeemed as light. And so what that means, every gross, nasty part of our existence, the things we don't want anyone to know about us, Jesus comes in and completely exposes it for the purpose of setting you free so that you are no longer in bondage to darkness, to sin, but now free by His grace and mercy. So He turns it into light. And He sanctifies in this process. And that's part of the exhale of God It is the very life of Jesus. God breathes into us the gospel life of Christ and we don't then take it upon our own selves to be like Jesus. In fact, He gives us His life. And that's the Spirit living inside of us. So we are to walk in step with the Spirit. The very life of Christ now courses through our veins. And Jesus overcomes Darkness cannot overcome is what John is saying. Meaning, Jesus is the eternal light. 
constantly burning, constantly bright, constantly providing life. There's no reason that we who are in Christ should ever find ourselves dying. Spiritually dying. There's always life. So that means then every evil, every every aspect of the world and death and sin and darkness will be shadowed and overcome with light. It's too bright. It's too powerful. Because what do we know about darkness? Darkness is the absence of light. And ultimately, when the light comes, the world we live in will be taken over by light. The death we experience will turn graveyards into crops awaiting for a resurrection. The sin we commit will be forever placed on the back of Jesus. The Apostle Peter records in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll read just verse 19. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter, along with James and John, got to see Jesus transfigured. So he's bringing that to surface and he's saying this word is true. And basically it's like a lamp. It's like a lamp to your soul. And it also is like the rising of the sun at dawn. If you watch sunflowers, which I don't, but if you watch sunflowers, you'll notice that they follow the sun. They follow the sun, at least the young ones do. NPR put out an article talking about young sunflowers. They follow the sun all day, and they spend the evening turning back to the east to catch the sunrise. They captured it best when they said, a young sunflower plant not only tracks the sun during the day, but also reorients at night in anticipation of dawn. Like Peter said, the the very Word of God is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. The very Word of God is the light and the life of our souls. Like a lamp that always shines in the dark. Like anticipating the rising of the sun. Are you following the Son? Are you following Jesus? Are you constantly turning towards Him? Are you trying to turn away? Are you reorienting your life in anticipation of the dawn? Are you eagerly awaiting for Him? Eagerly awaiting. Creation is eagerly awaiting the adoption of the sons of God. And what are we eagerly waiting for? A Super Bowl party? What are we eagerly waiting for? Christ is coming back. And when darkness settles, because it does in your marriage, it does in your life, it does when you're all alone and you're depressed and your anxiety and your anxiety is kicking up, when the darkness comes in, are you eager to get back to the light? Are you reorienting yourself to the east so that you may see Christ? And Jesus is constantly exhaling into your soul. Are you breathing that life in? Or are you taking your breath for granted? Listen to these words from Revelation 21. I'm bringing it to an end. And I saw no temple in the city. Talking about the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. No temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. If you've been following along in the Bible reading plan, you have come across the book of Exodus as of lately and the construction of the tabernacle. And one of the the featured items in the tabernacle is the lamp. And the lamp is constantly to be burned. And there are priests who have a responsibility to make sure the oil never goes out. That the light never goes out. And why? Because the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, all of that was a big fat picture of what was ultimately to come and be perfectly fulfilled in Christ who would become or is the light of the world. The eternal lamp that we get to enjoy 
for all eternity. His light never goes out. So church, there is a day coming where we will never have to anticipate the dawn again. Because night will never fall upon us in eternity. Just the glorious and splendid rays of Christ's glory. What we'll do is just face the Son. Just face Jesus for all time because from Him is radiating light and life. His glory will not burn our skin or give us cancer or cause us to run and hide in the shade. In fact, we will be eager to remain in the light and never, ever try to hide again. His glorious light will be a blanket of warmth, a forever healing, and eternal nourishment to our glorified bodies and souls. So let's enter then, as we transition into our time of communion, as we go out from this place, let's do this with great joy, with great thanksgiving to the eternal, creator, saving Word of God.